0: Good Thursday. This is your public radio station, KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. We start our Thursday with a discussion about incarceration and solitary confinement. Sarah Short spent more than 400 days in solitary confinement in an Iranian prison after being captured by Iranian border police in 2009. She was living in Syria, teaching Iraqi refugees and working as a journalist. Her confinement began after she was taken while hiking near a tourist site in Iraqi Kurdistan. Since her release, she has investigated how solitary confinement is used in American prisons, and she's written the play The Box, scheduled for three performances at the Arkansas Air and Military Museum in Fayetteville this weekend, beginning tomorrow night. Yesterday, I talked with Sarah via Zoom while she was in New Orleans. Quick note. The best internet connection was outside, so you're going to hear some background sounds. I asked Sarah Short about how her 410 days in solitary confinement informed The Box.
1: Well, I first wanted to understand what had happened to me. Solitary confinement, it, it, it works in, in very you know deep and, and insidious ways on the human psyche. And when it's happening to you, it's hard to have any distance from your own suffering to understand, you know, why you're behaving the way you are. Um, and there's a lot of shame uh, about what happens in isolation. Why did I start talking to my body parts? Um, why did I, um, you know, lose, why did I disassociate? Now I know the word for it at the time. I just knew I didn't, I wasn't in my body anymore. And, um, and, I was, and I found out later that I beat at the walls of my cell and made my knuckles bloody. And in these kind of things, you know, when you're, you don't know who will understand. When I came out, I didn't feel understood. I wasn't around people that had been through what I'd been through, and I had to seek them out. And I sought out people incarcerated in our country um, for support and understanding. And everywhere, everyone I talked to had such similar experiences. You know, solitary confinement affects all human beings in really similar ways, regardless of where you are, what country you're in. Um, after a few days, science shows that the, your brain waves start to um, slow down, and um, you you know you're you're um, you become obsessed with thoughts that are unproductive. You become basically your own torturer. You become the victim of your own mind. And it's, it, particularly when you're in isolation, if you came in with any kind of trauma to begin with or unresolved, um, you know, unresolved trauma, um, those, those past memories are going to haunt you and obsess you and, and just not leave you alone. And you can either become your own, your own best friend or your own worst enemy. And for most people, they become their own worst enemy. And so I got out and started to interview people and realized that this practice, I already knew that our, our, our system of incarceration was very much broken in this country and not fulfilling its goals for public safety. Um, but I didn't know that solitary confinement was used routinely, um, arbitrarily, on such a massive scale in this country. It really is one of the driving enablers of mass incarceration, we couldn't warehouse millions of people without the threat of torture. And that's what solitary confinement is, according to UN international law. And there's total consensus in the scientific world on this. It does not do anything to help rehabilitate a person.
0: I think many people listening to our conversation will be surprised at how often solitary confinement is used and used as a possibility in the American uh, penal system.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's often the most vulnerable people. We have a story that it's the worst of the worst, the mass murderers. Um, sometimes it's people that have done heinous things, but solitary confinement isn't something that is um, part of a sentence given by a judge or you know, has due process, it's done internally. So it's a prison within a prison and it's used by guards and and wardens and prison administration, you know, to maintain control, which a reasonable person says, yeah, of course they need a way to do that, right? But this way of doing it is counterproductive to the goals of control because it attacks the frontal lobe, the part of your brain that helps you make good decisions. So people that may be making bad decisions, um, maybe acting out even violently, Often it's just verbally or you know, some small infraction that lands you in solitary. But these people are already um, under-resourced and not able to make good decisions for themselves. And then we're putting them in a situation that attacks the part of your brain that helps you with that. And so it only makes it more likely that you're going to get worse. And that's what we see again and again. People decompensate. If they have mental illness, it gets worse and worse. They act out more. They get more, a longer sentence in the hole in solitary confinement, um, and then they get dumped on society, they get put back into the streets with um, worse off than when they went into prison in the first place.
0: Yes, if our goal is actually, I mean if on the surface our goal for a correctional system is to reform, to avoid recidivism, it would seem that solitary would be counterintuitive to those goals.
1: Yes, exactly. And that's why it calls into question what our goal is. I mean, that might be what society believes they're paying for, but these institutions have come to, uh, to, to fulfill a, a, whether it's an intentional design or a design you know, that, is, that is born out of our system of inequality and systemic racism. But what these systems end up doing is um, becoming, you know, perpetuating themselves is creating conditions that make it so that the carceral state just grows and grows and grows. And at the same time, are, are our communities getting any safer? I don't hear anyone making that argument. There's no evidence that they are. Has crime gone down? There's some charts that say the tiniest little bit um, in the last 30 years. But if this experiment on mass incarceration, and now it's you know it's up and down, whatever. now it's going up again, as everyone knows. Um, but this experiment of mass incarceration has clearly failed, and it's it's long overdue. A reckoning is long overdue.
0: How do we define solitary confinement? That's not a private cell. That's not you in a cell by yourself.
1: No, it's it's lack. It's being cut off from all resources and um, any recourse to you know have a voice. Um, contest whatever um, allegations have been put against you as far as breaking any kind of prison rule. Um, You know, access, education, materials, often visitation is is cut off or severely limited. And solitary confinement by international law is 22 to 23 hours alone in a cell. The average solitary confinement cell is eight by 10 feet in this country. And you get, and most of them have no windows. Um, Sometimes you actually are double-celled and that's called isolated confinement. that's different than solitary confinement. Um, it's All of this is on, the way I think, what I think is really crucial for people to understand is that all of these conditions are on a spectrum. In a real way, our whole prison system is solitary confinement. The whole system is designed to cut people off from their families, from their community, from their resources, from any means that they have to better themselves, to make amends for harm they may have, committed, or, or created, um, perpetrated, um, to, you know, to do, to be accountable, you know, prison doesn't leave any avenues open for accountability or healing. Um, and solitary confinement is the deep end of that, that whole ideology of let's punish people. Um, and that is somehow going to make them be better citizens.
0: How do you bring this to the stage? Don't give more away than you than than you want to, but how do you bring this to a narrative for 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 an audience?
1: Well, what we try to what we do with the box, um, and half of our cast is formerly incarcerated or system impacted, like myself, um, is we um, we our piece is a balance between showing the horror of what is happening in our prisons that people need to know about and showing the humanity of the people that are subjected to it. So what I found in my investigation, I for three years, I investigated solitary confinement as a journalist. I'm a trauma informed journalist and um, I went to over a dozen facilities and visited people that i had been writing for, for over six months. And again and again, I saw just I met with people in cages, the visitation. That they're put in are often literal cages, and um, you know, you can touch fingers through the mesh, um, or put a candy bar through the slot. And these people were cracking jokes, you know, we're telling we're, were telling you stories about their lives. We're so supportive and had so much humanity, and um, so the misconceptions about who the people are that end up in solitary confinement is, is fundamental. The other piece is about showing that people don't give up. Um, the play is about resistance. The play is a, based on a historic event, the 2013 California prisoner hunger strike, which was the largest prisoner hunger strike in US history. And it, it was formed by five men in solitary confinement at Pelican Bay in, in Northern California. And they were from different racial groups, which prisons are are very much encouraged people to be only, um, um you know fraternizing with their um with their racial groups and you know they call them gangs you can call them what they are they're they're communities and they're based on on um, a common affinity um, or identity and um these people these came together across their we were all leaders of their groups and 20,000 people went without food, some of them for up to three months in California to protest solitary confinement. That's what the play is inspired by. And so I want the audience to ask themselves, and and this is what we often hear from audience members, if these people who have lost everything are still willing to put whatever they have left on the line, which is basically their own lives and their own sustenance to protest and to come together across these deep divisions, why can't we do that on the outside? I mean. Maybe it sounds idealistic. That's what a lot of people would say. But this happened. (laughs) This is history.
0: The idea, of course, is for this to make an impact to to don't let me put words in your mouth, but at least at the very least, start a conversation toward real reform.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing is we're doing legislative art. We're going to places across the country that already have strong movements to, to uplift their efforts. They have legislation that they're trying to pass. Um, the Mandela laws are the laws that are um, the, the uh, under international law says should be prohibited. Um, and we ask also all of our, our community partners across the country on the front lines, um, their strategy to end solitary confinement is alignment with the ultimate goal of decarceration. We have far too many people in our prisons The more people you have in your prison, in prison, the more inevitable it is that harsh punishment and torture like solitary confinement is going to be used against them. Um, So the more people in in prison, the more people are going to end up in solitary confinement. So decarceration is core to the strategy of ending torture um, and mass incarceration. And, you know, laws have been passed. The movement to end solitary confinement is... um, is gaining momentum and has been for the last 10 years. Many states have banned putting youth and pregnant women, and in some cases, um, mentally ill people in solitary. The majority of people in solitary confinement in this country had mental illness before they were put in solitary. So our prisons and jails have become our de facto um, mental um, health um, psychiatric facilities. Um, and um, obviously, we can do a lot, lot better.
0: As, as you mentioned, you're a trauma-informed journalist. When you're going on your investigation to, to, to interview people who are literally in cages, I mean, obviously, self-care was a concern for you. I mean, that would, I would think, take some internal conversation to know that you wanted to go into these prisons, given what you've gone through.
1: Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, you know. I mean, I always say, like, one person's medicine is another person's um, poison, you know. And um, the thing with trauma and healing, I mean, I was so lucky that I came out of my trauma with the ability to to have a voice and and help others. And I had a platform, because my my story was very high profile. Twelve years ago, when I was held hostage by the Iranian government, um, and so to me, the work is empowering. It might be exhausting at times, but I wouldn't choose this if it wasn't part of my, um, you know, healing journey is what it is. But um, to see system impacted people come to our show and, and, and the, 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 the act of collectively bearing witness to have something that's so invisibilized, not talked about, um, you know, the shame that I talked about that people carry with them. Why, why was this done to me? You know what did I do wrong? Why am why is society throwing me away? Um, it's 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 part of our 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 essential core, um, just makeup of what we're made of as human beings. It's that we need to to, to be part of a collective to feel not you know not um, rejected or targeted. People in solitary confinement are, in this country are people that have been targeted their whole lives. Often, you know from the, from from a from elementary school to the day that they step into that cell, they've been told that they're unwanted, that they, you know, don't matter as much as everybody else, and that there's something wrong with them. And then, but these people are so resilient, and you know, this tour is really built around that that incredible um, impulse that humans have to find a way to connect and to heal together. That you can't heal in isolation, and you sometimes have to do kind of extraordinary things um, to, um, to open up that, that space, um, for something, for transformation. That's what we have on the side of our bus. On one side, we have end isolation and the other side we have begin transformation. And, um, you know, yeah. So I guess I didn't answer your question though. I'm so sorry, Kyle. It's not hard on me. It's like, it's empowering. It's both, but that, you know, the work is, is, it comes from so much love that, um, you know, it's, it just feels much It would be hard to sit and and do nothing with with what I've seen and where I've been and what I know.
2: Sarah
0: Shord is the writer, director, and an actor in The Box, currently on national tour as the end of isolation tour. The play will be staged at the Arkansas Air and Military Museum in Fayetteville tomorrow, Saturday, and Sunday. After the 90-minute play, there will be a 30-minute post-performance engagement circle to process the content of the play. Local partners for the production include Decarcerate and Arkansas Justice Reform. National partners include Unlock the Box and Solitary Watch. More details about the show and tickets at endofisolationtour.org. The KUAF
3: Lunch Hour, an intimate concert series with music from local artists and lunch from local restaurants, features Pura Coco with food from Mo Tacos and Churros Friday, July 22nd. Pura Coco, a singer-songwriter born in New York but now based in Northwest Arkansas, uses an alternative R&B genre to convey a multitude of emotions to further connect with people. Pura Coco has a performance coming up July 17th at Crystal Bridges, and you can see more of her work on YouTube. Pura Coco supplying the music, Mo Tacos and Churros will have the delicious food. It's the KUAF Lunch Hour, July 22nd. Doors open at noon, music begins at 12:20 at the KUAF Studios in Fayetteville. For more and to register to attend, the Lunch Hour on you Facebook.
4: Say your ex. You say I'm what's next? Why don't you see my point? Of-
0: This is Ozarks at Large. Canopy NWA, a refugee and resettlement nonprofit, sponsored a summer camp for teenage refugees, empowering them to share their stories and life experiences. They came to the Carver Center for Public Radio last month, and Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore sat down with two of the students, Shamari Rimbo, a 15-year-old, and Chantel Malongeka, a 17-year-old. You are part
5: of the Leaders of Tomorrow program, right? Can you tell me a
0: little bit about
5: what that means to you to have the title of leader
6: of tomorrow. It's kind of fun like what we've been doing so far cuz we've been learning new things about each other cuz most of us we came here to the United States and we met here. So we were we like a lot of us came from like same place but we just met here. So it's getting fun like learning new things about each other and, and working to like try to change other people's life. So before you came to Northwest Arkansas, where were you prior to that? Uh, I was born in Tanzania.
5: Tanzania. Yeah. Same for you? Yeah. Okay. And so what brought you to to the United States and to Arkansas? I'll ask you.
7: My dad, I mean, my, my family, my parents um, were from Congo because of war. So they came in Tanzania as refugees. So... Um, they were immigrant people, so as immigrant, they were uh, helping them to get um, a better place. And there was like my dad was telling me that he wants to get me a good place that I, I will have a good education, good life. So I feel like I'm part of that. I feel like my dad is um, do his job to make me to be here, even though there is other people that help him. I'm, as a refugee person, so I feel like um, my dad is the one too, who helped me to be here, even though. Immigrant people helped me too, but my dad—I feel like my dad is the hero actually mm. to, yeah, to bring me here. Yeah, yeah.
5: So coming from from similar places, do you find that you you talk more about the things you had in common in Tanzania or in Congo, or do you find things here um, that you find in common and enjoy together? Do you find? you spend more time talking about here or there?
6: So whenever we're with our friends, like example at school, I usually talk about both, cause like they'll ask me questions, trying to know like where I was, came from, like what I used to do over there. So I kind of like share my story, like what I used to do over there and then like what I, like I've been doing right now and then what I've been through. So yeah.
7: Yeah, and sometimes when like we sit us, sometimes we talk about Tanzania so we just, like, do you remember that? And we just laugh together, so things like that.
5: Do you find yourself switching from, you know, say the, your, your native language to English back and forth? Do you find that you talk more in your native language? Do you find that you talk to each other more in English? Does it depend? So
6: at home, we just speak our language. But, like, whenever we get out, like, home, we go to Walmart, school, we speak English. Because if you, like, talk Swahili, that's the language I speak. mm Nobody like will understand what you're saying. Plus, there's not like a lot of refugee or like people who speak your language at school. So you got to talk them like in English, so they can be able to understand like what you're saying.
5: Right, but if you if you want to if you want to talk about the guy over there and he doesn't speak Swahili, and the two of you speak Swahili, can you can you just kind of you don't yeah, even have yeah. to whisper? Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what have you found here that reminds you of? Your previous home. Have you found anything, whether it's in nature, whether it's in just experiences, things that remind you of home and kind of help this become a new home for you? Have you had any of those experiences?
7: Well, I don't know.
5: That's okay. Is, is that is that hard? I mean, do you do you have a harder time calling this home because there's so little that reminds you of home?
6: I mean, well, so like. You know, every time you move to a different place, it's not an easy thing. So and then it'll be hard to actually like change to become like American, like to like where I came from. So but every you know, every here is like different, so and then everywhere you go is different. So you gotta like just get used to it and kinda like fighting through it, I guess.
5: Yeah. yeah. It's it's adjusting. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's finding ways to keep the things in mind that you learned from a previous place and use that to help you grow in your new place oh yeah right mm-hmm. um how is how has school been for you have you noticed changes in the way that classrooms are set up or in the way that you are educated are you finding it harder easier just different
7: different it was hard but now I feel like it's going well.
5: What has been the same? I mean, is, is there anything where, you know, a lot of times when people talk about, you know, there's, there tends to be a language barrier, but maybe math or something where like there's, there's some common language in math. Do you find that to be easier? Are you kind of more of a, you know, an artistic person where art is kind of a, a a common language for all?
6: I'll say math and sports. So, cause like (laughs) math is like, kind of easy thing it doesn't you don't like have to be speaking english but you just gotta understand how to do the math which is easy like for everyone you gotta use your brain and in sports you just gotta know how to play you don't like have to uh, speak english so example me i play soccer so like when i came here i didn't know how to speak english but i was playing really good with my friends we understand each other play like pass the ball and you move on so yeah that's how i like how we do right yeah what is something that you have
5: learned about yourself from being here in America? Do you find that you are perhaps braver than you thought you were? You're um, you're not as shy as you once were. Um, you you have the ability to think ten years in the future. Um, what have you learned about yourself
6: since you've come here to the United States? Something I learned myself. I'm not like I'm not a shy person. So wherever like since I was born, I'm not shy. So, uh, and then something else I was I learned about myself is that I'm that person who doesn't give up on things. So, I like I like to work hard and achieve it. What about for you?
7: Um. Well, one thing that I learned myself. Well, I'm a shy person. Sometimes I feel shy though, but sometimes I, I don't. So, one thing that I learned about myself is that I am very confident about myself, cause. Back home, um, we was living in life there like you don't think about your future. You're just living. You don't know what's going on in the world. So, But now I got um, time to think about myself, what I can do and what I cannot do. So I feel like I'm a—I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I find myself in a lot uh, of—in different ways that I couldn't even think about myself back then. So— I feel like I'm something else right now.
5: There's something uh, growing up as an American uh, from maybe the age of like five or six. Things that adults will start asking you is, "What do you want to be oh, when yeah. you grow up?" Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, hearing you talk about your experiences, you know, you're just living. You're just oh, yeah. trying to make it to the next day sometimes, and mm-hmm. especially coming to America as refugees, you have a new opportunity to stop living in. The moment to moment of life, and actually start to think maybe I want to be
6: a professional soccer player. Oh, yeah, when I grow up, plus we're young too, so we like change a lot. Like when I came here, I said, I, I want to be police. Next day, I'll say, I want to be this. So I just uh say, uh, I'll think whenever I'm a junior in high school because that's like the point of it, like where you going to start thinking about your future or like what are you going to start in a college so yeah yeah
5: i changed my major <laughs> in
6: college four different times
5: um and when i was when i was 16 i wanted to be a professional musician mm-hmm. um when i was 14 i wanted to be a professional baseball player See, yeah. and, and and you know i changed my major so many times and and i didn't even know i could do this for a living until about five or six years ago mm-hmm. um yeah. and so learning just so many opportunities, and and never trying to, you know, put yourself into say like this is what I have to be when I grow up it is a really great opportunity uh, that you have, and I'm so glad that um, that you're not trying to do that to yourself now to say like I have to be the next senator yeah. or the next <laughs> great politician or you know a, a principal of a school that like you're open to all ideas and. Um, you you're all very uh encouraging to someone like me to see um your resilience your willingness to come to a new place that's unfamiliar that you don't know the language um and to to thrive in such a way is really really awesome to see um so what do you want to be when you grow up
7: <laughs> right now I'm I'm not that sure but I was like when I'm pre- when somebody asked me what do you wanna be I'm like I wanna be a nurse I wanna be a doctor maybe a surgeon mm. so I don't know I'm still thinking I mean I'm I'm trying to make sure I might really want to be this or there is something else yeah like, I'm trying to figure it out.
6: That's awesome. What about you? Uh, so uh, I actually finally made my decision what I want to be in future. So I like to uh, go to college and study for electric engineering. That's awesome. Yeah, cause I like to mess with things and then uh, to also play sports, soccer there too if I get a chance. That's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I would take you on one
5: on one, but I know that you would certainly beat me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you can find out more about the leaders of tomorrow, Canopy and their work resettling refugees from across the nation into northwest Arkansas at CanopyNWA.org.
8: In the background is the Jazz Bossa Nova group, Sons of Brazil. And I'm Robert Ginsburg, your host for Shades of Jazz. We'll hear more from these guys, as well as music from John Coltrane, Dave Brubeck, Chet Baker, Sonny Stitt, and much more. Tune in to Shades of Jazz right here on KUAF 91.3 FM.
0: Shades of Jazz tomorrow night at 10 on KUAF 91.3 and Saturday from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on KUAF 3. You can find KUAF 3 for free on your HD radio by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF 3 or by using the free audio streams at KUAF.com or with the KUAF app. Officials with the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, LIHEAP, say residents can begin submitting applications Monday for help with the cost of summer cooling bills, including those from Entergy Arkansas and other utilities. LIHEAP is funded through the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and designed to lower the energy burden for low-income households who pay a high proportion of household income for home energy costs by paying benefits for home energy bills. The assistance available until September 30th or until funds are completely gone, whichever comes first. Program offered in all 75 counties in Arkansas through community-based organizations. You can find out more online at Adeq.state.ar. Dot us slash energy slash assistance. I think we'll put that link at ozarksatlarge.com. That's a lot to remember. You can also find there a complete list of eligibility and required documentation to complete the application.
9: Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. Arvest Bank has announced another key step in its digital transformation journey, a partnership with Google's cloud computing division. We've got some details on the program, plus some comments from Laura Merling. And she is the person most responsible for charting Arvest Bank's growth strategy into the digital future. Mercy Health plans to invest a half billion dollars in the second phase of expansion in northwest Arkansas, and writes barbecue fans in Benton County are buzzing this week about its company's expansion plans. Those stories and more are on the way after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report.
10: Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda, and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield live fearless. More information at arkansabluecross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender.
9: Arkansas's largest bank is partnering with Google's cloud computing division to accelerate its multi-year digital transformation strategy that will essentially transform the bank into a software company. That partnership has been ongoing for several months, and Arvest announced some of those details today. The company said it would improve customer service and streamline banking processes using Google's artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies. Laura Merling is Arvest Bank's Chief Transformation and Operations Officer. Before joining the company late last year, she worked for Google Cloud. We spoke briefly this week about the partnership and what the changes mean for Arvest Bank customers. So if I'm an Arvest
8: Bank customer and I see this news
9: and I read this, what's the one takeaway
8: that you want an Arvest customer to have when they read news of this partnership with with Google? I mean, the name Google resonates, right, so much with, with pretty much everyone. What's the big takeaway you want an Arvest customer to, to have from this?
11: Well, it, it's a... It's a... <laughs> It's a couple of takeaways, if I may, but one okay. is that we're really doing this to make the customer experience better across any channel you want to interact with us. So even though we're a software company, it doesn't mean that we don't, we don't, you know, you still walk into the branch and do relationship banking. It's just how do you make that relationship banking better? How do you make sure that that person that's working with you one-on-one is more informed, right? Um, Making sure that when you call the contact center, they have everything that they need so they can be responsive to you in real time and answer your questions and help you with whatever it is you're doing. Um, Or if you want to go online and self-serve, you can. And so it's really about making sure you have a consistent experience as a customer across all of our channels. And that's really what it's about. Becoming a software company is really about making sure we improve that customer experience.
8: How unique is it – I mean, before you came to Arvest Bank, you, of course, worked with uh, Google Cloud. How unique is a partnership like this with a, um, quote-unquote, community bank like Arvest, the size of Arvest Bank, um, and a partnership with Google Cloud? I mean, this isn't Citibank or Chase or just some banking behemoth. How how unique – or I think it's unique – how unique is it to, to be working with a community bank like Arvest?
11: Yeah, you know they have um, they have uh, dozens of banks in their portfolio, and then hundreds of um, of financial we'll call them financial services companies. Mm-hmm. It is unique given our, our our size and scale as as a bank, and so we're super excited. And they are as well. I think you know Google is committed to community um, and and growth in local communities, and we've seen that through some of their programs like Grow with Google and things like that. Um, and so we're excited about the partnership and what it can mean for us and as we think about what it means to be a community bank in a in a digital world.
8: Right. Last question is kind of a jobs uh, slash workers question, I guess, to do the work. You um, get a lot of support from Google, all that you need, but as far as the Arvest personnel and the skill set that you need among existing Arvest employees, will this create any new jobs for Arvest? Are you going to be re directing existing employees to new roles, or just kind of how does it work from that end?
11: Oh, that is such a a great question. Um, uh, You know, as I mentioned, one of the key things that we're excited about with the partnership with Google is the opportunity to learn that they've provided us and the the support. So we do have a whole um, reskilling program that we've been working on, and we've um, started to pilot with a handful of associates. Um, And so there are new skills that are needed, and so there's upskilling, reskilling. It's everything from uh, some roles in data to what we call DevOps and cloud engineers and, and things like that. Um, we also will be doing hiring, so we want to merge some existing skills while we build the new skills. And part of that is really so that we can people can learn from each other, right? You have people that have been of Arvis for a long time that can bring huge value of you know what is the RFS culture, and how do we continue to carry that, and how do we deliver that in products with folks that maybe have been doing cloud computing for several years and can bring them that skill set and, and demonstrate how to do it, right? So it's this great marriage of the two, and so we're really excited. Actually, my my team is meeting today about our, our upskilling reskilling uh, pilot to see to get the feedback and look at the next batch batch of participants. So we're very excited about it.
9: And that is Laura Merling with Arvest Bank. For more on the company's digital transformation efforts with Google Cloud, head over to our website at nwabusinessjournal.com. Now let's talk growth strategy for another of Northwest Arkansas's big brand names, and that is Mercy Health. The company said this week it will invest about $500 million in the second phase of its health care expansion in the region. And that will include several projects including a cancer center and additional services and new jobs. It is all meant to support the region's rapid and continuing growth. And in even more expansion news, Wright's Barbecue is opening a third location in northwest Arkansas, this one in Rogers, in the former McClard's barbecue space in Pinnacle Hills. Owner Jordan Wright said he is hoping to be up and running by September. And finally today, we remember Cameron Smith. He died this week from complications due to cancer. He was 71 years old. Smith launched his eponymous executive recruiting firm nearly 30 years ago in Northwest Arkansas, and it would be impossible to look at the massive expansion of the region's Walmart vendor community and not see his fingerprints all over it. But beyond that, he was so much more an entrepreneur, philanthropist, mentor, and dedicated community leader. Cameron Smith was a California guy, but for the past three decades, there was no greater advocate for Northwest Arkansas. Funeral services are planned Saturday at 11 a.m. at Fellowship Bible Church in Rogers. For all of those stories, visit nwabusinessjournal.com, where you can follow our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. Arkansas reported 11 deaths yesterday from COVID-19. That's the highest daily increase in more than three months. The Department of Health's website also showed about 1,800 new known infections. The number of active cases grew by just over 200 people, with nearly 17,000 people having been impacted by the virus. Dr. Robert Hopkins is Chief of Internal Medicine at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Speaking with us, he said people should once again wear masks in public settings.
8: If you're going to the grocery store, if you're going to the um Uh, you know, any indoor space with other people that you don't know their status, don't know that they're well and or negative, I think not masking up is putting yourself at risk.
0: Dr. Hopkins says adopting more public health safety measures can help cut down on people being infected with the virus more than once. Studies have shown repeated infections can cause so-called long COVID symptoms.
8: You know, if you hit a baseball multiple times, you're much more likely to have a long hit than you are if you hit it once. I think that, that really fits with what we see with COVID. You have more infections, you're much more likely to have prolonged symptoms than you are if you have it only once. Um, so we want people not to have the infection.
0: Hopkins says Arkansans should still get vaccinated and still receive booster shots, though the current vaccines are not targeted at the predominant BA4 and BA.5 sub variants. Drug companies have said they hope to have vaccines for those strains by autumn.
2: This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with the first of ten preludes for solo cello, written by Russian composer Sofia Gubaidulina in 1974. The title of this first prelude is Staccato Legato, short and long, Gobaidolina wrote this collection of cello pieces as an exploration of multiple or single elements of the instrument's techniques. Born in 1931, Gobaidolina's compositional style is marked by her fascination for sound and color. Her repertoire includes symphonic and choral works, concertos for string instruments, and works for percussion groups, among others. For her... Music was an escape from the oppressive Russian society. Also in the hands of cellist David Hetherington from a performance at the Kerner Hall in Toronto in October of 2020, let us listen to the end of the second prelude, this time titled Legato Staccato, The Opposite of the First, in which Gubaidolina delves even further in the characteristics and uniqueness of the violoncello. Thank that was cellist David Hetherington from a performance at the Kerner Hall in Toronto, October of 2020, interpreting the end of Russian composer Sofia Gubaidulina's second prelude for cello solo, written in 1974. Lágrimas negras, Black Tears, is a bolero song composed by Cuban musician Miguel Macamoros in 1930 and first recorded in 1931, the same year when Sofia Guadalina was born. This song has been performed and recorded by a variety of voices and artists through the years, and this one is a particular rendition as it includes Spanish flamenco singer Diego El Cigala and Cuban pianist arranger Bebo Valdés.
4: Y aunque tú me has dejado en el abandono, y aunque tú has muerto mi De maldecirte con justo encono Y en mis sueños te como, Y en mis sueños te como De bendiciones Sufro la inmensa pena de tu extravío. Pa' que el llanto mío Tiene lágrimas negras Tiene lágrimas
12: negras Como mi vida
2: Lágrimas Negras, a Cuban bolero song interpreted by Spanish flamenco singer Diego El Cigala and Cuban pianist arranger Bebo Valdez. Today in Sound Perimeter, we have explored contrast. Let us listen to the end of Lágrimas Negras, one of the most beautiful love songs ever written in a version that mixes the Afro-Cuban rhythms, improvisatory style and cadence of Cuban music with the melancholic and profound inflections of flamenco singing style. This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with painting.
4: de blanco y oro que yo te daba que yo te daba agua del limonero agua del limonero si te acaricio la cara tienes que darme un beso tú me quieres dejar, yo no quiero sufrir contigo me voy tan allá aunque me cueste morir
0: contigo me
4: voy tan allá
0: Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, fighting the threat of wildfires in Arkansas this summer and more new plays in progress as the Arkansas New Play Festival wraps up this weekend at Theater Squared. Ozarks at Large, tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3, just about any time you want when you download or subscribe to the Ozarks at Large podcast. Ozarks at Large is underwritten,
3: in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Arcegas, a family-owned and operated coffee roastery with five cafes in downtown and South Fayetteville, including the Mill District on South School. Offering seasonal menus, cocktails, state-of-the-art coffee bar, and
0: more. Willie Carlisle is back in Fayetteville tomorrow night with a performance at Mount Sequoia. He's celebrating the completion of his first European tour and his new album on Free Dirt Records. Tomorrow night's show in the Phoenix Gallery will be a one-act musical performance about a love story set in peculiar Missouri. It's a town about 150 miles north of Bella Vista. The performance was awarded Best Solo Show at the Orlando Fringe Festival. That's the largest independent theater festival in the United States. Tomorrow night's show begins at 8, limited seating. More details at phoenixarts.org. It's the Community Spotlight
3: on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman, joined in the Nancy Blair Operations Studio by Kenny Williams, Program Director with Pedal It Forward NWA. Kenny, nice to see you. It's been a while. Great to see you, Pete. Thanks for having me. Um, Y'all have got a really neat event coming up this Saturday. It's called Filmed by Bike. It's a film fest taking place in Rogers. But first, let's remind listeners y'all's focus in our community.
13: Absolutely. We are a nonprofit charity that focuses on collecting, refurbishing, and distributing bicycles to those in need in Northwest Arkansas. We focus on giving bikes away to our nonprofit partners, but we also Uh, show up at lots of different events in the community and give bikes away to folks that way. Uh, We also rely heavily on volunteers coming in to work on our bikes. And so anyone who has a passion about our mission is welcome to come to one of our shops and help us out.
3: Very, very cool. Uh, Okay, this Saturday's event, that's July 23rd, it's called Filmed
13: by Bike. It's the traveling version of a festival in Portland. Okay. And they send this show around. This is a compilation of what they call bike love. And so it's it's an inspirational, bicycle-themed collection of films uh, that anyone will enjoy, but especially cyclists. Includes a pre-show
3: slow-roll bike ride. Describe this.
13: Yeah, so this is with uh, Marley Blonsky of All Bodies on Bikes. It's only going to be a few miles. It's going to be above 100 degrees. So we're going to focus on staying in the water, staying in the shade, having a drink, and then heading back to the happy hour. So
3: Then the doors open at 6 p.m. at the Victory Theater for filmed by bike, and then an after party.
13: Absolutely. We'll have everyone who wants to attend back to our shop in Rogers for an after party. So The entire uh, funds from this event fund our operations at Pedal It Forward. Uh, and enable us to give more bikes away.
3: Speaking with Kenny Williams,
13: Program Director with Pedal It Forward
3: NWA. Okay, somebody wants some tickets, want to know more about y'all, maybe want to volunteer, what's the best way?
13: Absolutely, the easiest way is our website, pedalitforward.org. The ticket link is right up top, uh, as well as other ways to volunteer, give, or get involved. Thanks for letting us know about it. I hope you got a packed house. Thank you, Pete, see you there.
3: I'm Pete Hartman, it's the Community Spotlight on KUAF. Your voice matters.
0: This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Little Flock. Contributors today included Matthew Moore, Paul Gatling, and Leah Uribe. Today's show produced inside Studio 120 by Matthew Moore. The Northwest Arkansas Business Journal is produced by Stephanie Brock. Additional production today provided by Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Additional content provided by our colleagues in the KUAR News Department in Little Rock. Don't forget live coverage tonight of the next January 6th uh, hearings in the U.S. House. That will begin at 7. Monday, Matthew Moore, we're going to hear about a story that you worked on.
5: Yes, uh, we're talking about a new blood test that is available to detect over 50 different kinds of cancer. Really groundbreaking research.
0: That's on Monday's Ozarks at Large. Thanks so much for being with us. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Callums.